everyone, and welcome back to our newest edition of our podcast, The Modern Cotton Story, sponsored by E3 Sustainable Cotton from BASF. I'm Jennifer Crumpler, Fiber Development Manager from BASF and manager of our E3 Sustainable Cotton program. I'm excited um, to share with you guys, this will be the first episode of a new series, Debunking the Myths. You know, series, I think, or better, I know, it's going to be a fun series where we'll be able to hear alternative stories from our industry and some of my favorite disruptors in the industry. I'm happy to be joined again today by my friends Andrew Ola and Bob Andeshek of Ola Inc. Good morning, Andrew and Bob. How are you? Hey, Jennifer. Happy to be back. And, and I'm excited about the, um, the, new, the new series and, and having Crispin today. Jennifer, it's, it's uh, thank you again for inviting us back. I'm only on my third cup of coffee, so <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best to keep going. All right. Well, I'm, I'm still trying to finish my first. This um, hot weather in July has been uh, it's been a challenge, but I've made sure I've got my caffeine caffeine one way or the other. So, um, but I'm pleased, you know, like Andrew said, excited to introduce our special guest, Crispin Argentino from Sorcery. So, Crispin, good morning. How are things over in Amsterdam this morning? Hey, Jennifer. I'm doing well. Uh, things in Amsterdam are doing are, are, are really quite nice. We uh, we had a bit of summer, but now as in typical northern European weather, it's it's now faded. Um, and life is good with respect to COVID. Things are sort of easing up, or they were, but now we're kind of back in our houses because there was a a crop up of uh, of issues. But other than that, things are pretty good. Thanks. Awesome, awesome. Well, I'm super excited to have you on the show today, Crispin and. I know um, between myself, Bob, Andrew, we have a lot of questions for you. Um, so, but before we kind of jump into that, I was wondering if you would mind telling our listeners a little bit about your work in um, the organic cotton world and exactly um, what it is that you do. Sure. Thanks, Jennifer. I, um, I currently run an organization called The Sorcery, which is a consultancy where we work with brands, retailers, suppliers, and growers. Uh, to enable a, what I call a direct-to-grower um, engagement in terms of procurement and or sourcing and procurement. And one of the reasons we do this is not only for organic, but just for all sustainable cotton uh, to ensure that the that we're addressing some of the integrity and the impact challenges that exist specifically in sustainable cotton. Uh, prior to this work, I served as the executive director of the Organic Cotton Accelerator, which is a multi-stakeholder brand-driven initiative based here in Amsterdam, um, where uh, we invested in, in growers in India to address some of the critical challenges that exist uh, around seed, around inputs, uh, and around creating, most importantly, a farmer business case around sustainable cotton and, of course, organic cotton. Yeah, well, that's um, interesting. So that's, you know, I, I love to hear about that and the sustainable and organic. And, you know, a lot of what I do really is kind of along those same lines at BASF. So it's, um, you know, a little bit different business model, but, you know, kind of the same thing at the end of the day, just really want to make sure that we're creating those different grower business um, opportunities for our farmers. So, um, you know, you mentioned it and there's a lot of conversation and topics um, around organic cotton today. And, um, but I wanted to talk to you, you know, kind of about one of the issues that you brought up about, um, you know, seed and having um, access to seed. And, you know, one of those around seed, we always bring up the issue of GMOs or, you know, genetically modified organisms and contamination. 
So what, um, what has been your experience with this? Have you had, you know, any questions or issues or things with that? <laughs> I had a feeling that this would be the first confer- uh, the first question. Really, because it is the, uh, Wait, what? It's the, yeah, this is the, this is the, 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 the big, you know, question that always is, uh, gets gets circulated within the organic cotton community, but even outside of the organic cotton community. Um, so yeah, I mean, GMOs, there's no, uh, there's no questioning uh, within organic cotton, but really globally, the presence of GMOs around the world. We all know the statistics. It's about 90% of cotton globally, all sewed cotton globally. Um, and specifically within the organic cotton sector, that's, that's, I wouldn't say that's no different, but the organic cotton sector faces major systemic issues around seed, uh, seed innovation, uh, seed breeding, and then access to seeds, which, you know, I can talk about more later if it comes up. Um, But really when you look at organic cotton, and this is kind of a sad state that it currently is in, is 85% roughly of the organic cotton that's sown around the world, largely from three geographies, which is China, Central Asia, and India, which make up about 85%, as I mentioned, of the total organic production as according to textile exchange, which keeps the, the, the most up-to-date figures on, on volumes and yields. Um, there are major GMO issues. As we know, India is pr- primarily a BT uh, region, as is um, China and, of course, Central Asia. Uh, they have the same issues. So it's a major issue. It's a, it's a major issue that needs to be addressed and, and, and one of the things that we took up at OCA. Crispin, you know, um, thanks for that. Um, in one of our earlier episodes, we had Corey Mills, from, uh, who's a agronomist, and he, he talked a lot about breeding uh, E3 sustainable cotton at BSF. There's a long history of uh, the kind of breeding that he's been involved with and, of course, the company has been involved with. Um, so I was curious for, from the organic perspective, what role does organic cottonseed play, um, in, in terms of, in terms of breeding and, um, where does the industry actually, uh, where does it grow, where the growers get their seeds? How do they normally get their seeds, um, in the organic world? Yeah. Well, thanks, Bob. I'm happy to answer that question. I think it's important to note that there is no such thing as organic cotton seed per se. Organic is a term and a set of practices that are adopted by the grower themselves uh, in terms of agronomics, in terms of you know usage of, of inputs, um, uh, and and of course you know other practices. So, what organic cotton seed is is really just your native and uh, you know, uh, say cleaner varieties of cotton seed that don't have any of the genetic uh, modification uh, additives into them like a BT or, or the technology that E3 has. Um, as far as where some of the growers in organic get their seeds, it varies in industrialized systems like the growers that grow organic in West Texas and in New Mexico here in the United States or in the United States rather. Um, they have uh, relatively established seed producer companies that sell to them and or uh, localized seed banks. Uh, it gets more tricky where you go into the smallholder context in some of the developing world, uh, like in India. There are a number of seed producing companies out there, but again, there's not much of a market opportunity for them in non-GMO. Uh, and so access to those seeds and the quality of those seeds tends to be very poor. 
Uh, and there's a lot of mixing that happens between the non-organic, or I'm sorry, the non-GMO seeds and the uh, and the and the GMO seeds uh, in the seed supply chain, and that ends up being sowed by farmers that may happen to be certified by um, certified under an organic uh, system. You know, I, I want to ask too. You know, from the the farmer perspective, I know in, in some of these you mentioned India a few times. I know a lot of having been there and through a lot of those fields and a lot of those farmers over the years, I've noticed that they, they, they tend to mix uh, seed varieties freely. There's a lot of brown bag cotton or yep. cotton seed that goes on. Um, why, why does that matter to people if the farmers are trying to make a living? Well, I think it matters to people in the sense, and by people, do you mean growers? No, but brands sometimes, or or these or these NGOs sometimes. Well, I mean, it's it's I more th- question. They're trying to get purity. Yeah. And the question well, I have is, well, the farmers are trying to make a living. Yes. So. Well, and that's one of the things that can you know in the. I, I'm going to say this. It sounds weird, of course, we said, but in the turn of the century, when 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 genetically modified cotton really took off, of course, it was introduced in the U.S. and China in the late '90s, and then. Uh, into into India, for example, in, in the early 2000s, I think it was 2003, um, there was plenty of availability of non-GMO varieties that were sown in conventional systems and, of course, under organic agricultural systems. Um, the, um, to answer your question more succinctly, I think, though, uh, there's this assumption that the infrastructure exists on the ground for these seeds and for easy distribution. Um, and in non-GMO, as you mentioned, brown bags, that's very common. It's not commercialized very much um, because there's no incentive for seed producers, at least to grow large volumes of, of non-GMO seed. There is provisions in the Indian context that they're required to grow that. But again, um, whether or not there's a protocol to keep things separate to prevent cross-contamination is another question. And... Uh, you know, you, in a grower, if you go down to the rural villages, which I know you've been to, Bob, um, mm-hmm. you can go down to the local shop, the local, you know, vendors, and there will be a seed store. And in that seed store, there is usually not a variety of non-GMO seeds. You'll see 50 different packages that are, you know, glittering and glowing and different, you know, uh, under great names like, like you know, Indian deities, for example, um, of basically all the same variety of seed just in different packages, but there is not, um, there is not, non, there's not you know, GMO generally available. It's very fragmented and access to GMO is, is incredible. And access to non-GMO seed is incredibly difficult to secure. Hey, Crispin, it's, it's me, it's Andrew. Hey, Andrew. Um, good to have you here. I have Thanks. a question. I have a question or two. There's a, there's a lot of talk about organic in the press, as you know, in the apparel industry, but how much organic actually exists in the world? That's a complex um, <laughs> answer, and and I will I will lay it out to you in two ways. There is, let's start here. Let's start with certified organic, as reported by Textile Exchange, and so that's about one hundred and eighty thousand metric tons, uh, as of twenty seven or twenty eighteen twenty nineteen uh, growing season. Of that, that would pass a GMO test, is probably half that. Um, because of what I mentioned earlier and access to seeds. 
However, the interesting thing about organic, and this is where the controversy comes in to some extent, is we're willing to acknowledge the GMO crisis, but where there is a whole nother issue is what I would call uh, supply chain challenges where under the certification labels, whether that's GOTS or OCS or some other form out there, there's probably close to four to 500,000 metric tons we estimate that's being sold to brands, which of course is conventional cotton being sold under an organic label. And that has really put the sector into a tailspin. And the reason why there is this kind of backward supply dynamic, uh, supply uh, demand dynamic is that you know, uh, uh, starting with a, with a cut and sew facility uh, where the brands usually interact, if you ask for organic, it's kind of like putting wedding in front of cake. You can just charge more for it. So there's a huge incentive for selling organic cotton, but oftentimes it's conventional, sold as organic, further down the value chain. Got it. If that makes sense. So yeah, it's a real it. issue, and that's and that's a real integrity issue for brands because they might have all their papers in a row, but do they really have the real stuff? And we don't know at this stage. And, and that brings me to the other, I have a few questions. And that brings me to the, the most interesting one to me, is if there's 25 million farmers in the world, um, and in India there's, of course, you know, millions of farmers, why don't more want to grow organic if it's a higher price? Well, it's the higher price for brands, I mean, if I'm going to be fully transparent, which is what this conversation is really about, most of the growers don't receive a premium as you would expect from a higher yarn fabric finished good price that the organic labeling commands because there's such a huge disconnect between the demand side, which is on the brands, and then supply side, of course, which is back at the farm. And the mass majority of organic farmers, if they're certified, they sell into the conventional markets because like any farmer, when their crop is ready, they are ready to be paid. And there may not be a merchant or a buyer that says, hey, I'm willing to pay you an extra 5, 10, 15, 20% for your seed cotton um, or, your, or your lint cotton um, then and there. So what we call that is leakage effectively, that the farmer has done everything under the certification scheme, but then commercially there's no offer. So that creates a real disadvantage for them, uh, an incentivization structure to go organic, because why put in the extra work? Why assume the additional risk when I'm not going to get paid more for, not only for my contributions uh, on a sustainability side, but, 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 but some of the other benefits that, you know, organic is presumed to have. All right, and let's talk about the growers and the business case for organic cotton. Sure. Why? Why? Um, where's the most potential for organic cotton around the world? Is it the U.S., India? And also, why does Australia and Brazil not grow organic? Sure. Um, I think, I mean, it's hard to say. If you look at existing organic um, cultivation, and, and again, um, you know, or textile change has a number of statistics around that, the largest producers are China and India. Uh, but let's take India, for example, which produces about 47% of the, of the global production. In a smallholder context, and what I mean by smallholder is one and a half to two hectares. So let's say three to four uh, acres. These are small farms uh, in comparison to what you might find in 
the U.S. and in Australia and, and, and of course, in Brazil, where you have just massive, massive farms. Um, in a smallholder context, organic cotton works quite well. One of the things at OCA that we were able to actually demonstrate is when we were able to pay directly a producer or, or a grower a 10% premium above uh, the conventional market price, their net income from growing organic was higher than their conventional counterparts that may have been in the same village or a village next door. And that was kind of a profound discovery for us in terms of creating the business case for that farmer. In a uh, US, let's say more industrialized context, it's really difficult to do because the fields are so large and the additional work is required. Instead of the chemicals, you'd have to be replaced by uh, labor, uh, you know, unless there's automated and, and, and robotics that I know are kind of in the future. Um, plus, you also have just other climate conditions that in the U.S. that, that make it difficult. Um, there is no, as far as I know, there is no organic cotton grown in Australia. Um, for reasons that I mentioned, and just because of the way that the market is built there. In Brazil, there is some, but it's very, very small uh, quantities, I think maybe 10 to 20 metric tons, if that. Um, and again, because of the agronomic conditions, as well as the uh, way the market works in that sp those specific regions. Does that answer your question? Yeah, totally. Thank you. Okay, of course. Yeah, and Kristen, you know, you mentioned something, and this is something that, um, you know, I know Bob, Andrew, and I, and others, we've talked about it, and, and I'm sure you have too, being so close working with the growers and trying to figure out and help them, in, you know, with their business case, um, you know, and, and that's something that at BASF, I think, you know, we do with our E3 growers, um, we pay those guys a premium for growing cotton sustainably and, um, you know, help them get some of that value or premium back and, you mentioned that, you know, growers really don't receive the premium that brands are labeling or collecting for those premiums and stuff like that. I mean, you know, do you, what do you think like down or have you guys seen ways or thoughts on how do we try to get some of that premium to get it back to our farmers and to our growers, because they're the ones, you know, really out there every day working and doing it. Absolutely. And that's, uh, that is a, um, that's been a, 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 a challenge, I think, because of the, um, the, the flows of fiber from field mm -hmm. to processing and gin, you know, just the physical movement, um, the, the disconnect, as I mentioned before, at, at the growing level to even where the merchants play and, 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 and of course, in the spinners play. Um, and then that kind of cascade up the, up the, up the value chain is, is difficult to move capital um, uh, but there are tools, of course, not to plug what I'm, I'm doing in terms of my consulting, but, but certainly one of the reasons why Sorcery was founded is because we nominate producers directly. I work with brands that nominate groups of producers and say, okay, I want to buy from this specific farm. I know what sustainability uh, impact that they are doing, and I'm willing to pay a premium uh, above and beyond the market price because I want that cotton in my products. And so... That's kind of a new approach to sourcing and, and procurement on behalf of the brands. Um, and of course, they're not actually trading capital, but they are doing this through a nomination process uh, along yeah. the chain. Um, and that's, that I think is one of the solutions. Um, 
but you know, as far as sustainability concerned, I would love to see an organic cotton sector that solves this issue. But I also would like to see a sustainable cotton sector that solves this issue. I think that, you know, the amount of work that any farmer is putting in day to day to um, grow their crop just as is, plus the added requirements and learnings and, you know, cost potentially of growing sustainably, we have to figure out a mechanism to scale a premium to producers. How do we do that? That's a, that's, I don't know. I'd love to figure yeah. out how to work with E3 and, 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 you know, maybe B, BCI and some of these other entities on, on doing that. Um, yeah. I don't know. And, and that's, yeah, and I think that's great. And, you know, we, we definitely can uh, offline talk about that because that's what we do. That's what we're doing, you know, with us, with our growers. We had close yeah. to 600 growers last year and we pay that premium because we see the value um, BASF does. And now it's just kind of like, how do we, you know, it, it, and it brings up another issue, like you said, um, you know, like organic cotton, one of the value propositions and even some, you know, sustainable is own product claimed. So, yep. you know, organic cotton's claimed on a label or hang tag, um, you know, to be in a finished pair of jeans, t-shirt or something. And, you know, uh, interested how to see this is managed at the farm or the merchant supply chain level, just knowing, um, like we were saying, hey, you know, the, as much as cotton moves around and as much as it does this, you know, um, yeah. just to know if you might could share some about how, you know, within the cotton, in the organic sector, how some of that is managed, just knowing there's a lot of label claims and, you know, and listening to and the amount of cotton produced or maybe not be as, much cotton produces some is being labeled. So I'd be interested to hear some of that. Sure. Um, you know, this is uh, when I was serving as the ED of, of OCA, I would often speak of this and it was controversial because particularly within organic, the value proposition that has been made is that the organic cotton that is grown is ends up on the t-shirt because there are perceptions that a organic t-shirt uh, is healthier for the skin or healthier for the person, which has been completely debunked. Um, you know, at the point of a final garment, there are no residue from pesticides, et cetera, on, on the cotton. It's been washed a million times, as we know. Um, more importantly, though, I think that something that the organic cotton sector needs to acknowledge, as well as just any sort of product claims, is we're dealing with a commodity here. Um, and commodity uh, are by their inherent nature fungible. And of course, what that word is, is that, you know, everything is exchangeable. Um, and so if you look at the complexity of the supply dynamics, the flow of the cotton, having a segregated system is, it's not impossible, but it's very rare unless you have a fully vertical supply chain that, uh, pays very close attention to a uh, chain of custody uh, of all the lots along the way from lay down all the way through the finished good. And it really is, uh, it, it is a myth. Um, uh, so much so there, that, that, that there's a, a, a lab that's out of Germany called Hohenstein that has built a, a testing scheme to test on final cotton um, or our final product uh, that whether it's GMO contamination and and what's been recently discovered, of course, is that uh, you cannot test for GMO contamination after the, the, the fiber has been processed in bleach and other things. So it, it's so fascinating because it's impossible uh, in most contexts, in most supply chains for you to have on product traceability uh, from the farm all the way to the finished t-shirt, unless there's as administrative process I mentioned, or uh, 
you know, more recently there are, there are traceability technologies out there like um, uh, applied DNA or um, fiber trace or others that have, have really cracked the nut with respect to being able to see on product traceability, not only the flow within a facility, but between facilities. And, and you can see the chain of custody and, and it makes it much easier, which is I think critical going forward for uh, supply chains that, uh, that, that brands want to benefit directly from the sustainability of, of their, of the grower. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're talking about that, Kristen, where, where do you want to see that um, going in the future as far as um, organic cotton and the sector and the uniqueness of it? And, you know, knowing all the challenges, you know, what are some of your thoughts on where you want to see some of that to hit? I think what makes organic cotton really unique, Jennifer, is that the intention that exists in organic cotton, despite its challenges at the farm level and in the supply chain level, the intention for organic cotton, the vision for organic cotton should be the vision for all cotton. Um, and what I mean by that is elevating the role of the grower in the dialogue and in and, and valuing the role of the grower and celebrating the contributions that they make and not them having be a, 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 a disenfranchised or, or disconnected, uh, such a critical element of the supply chain. Um, and, you know, without growers, we don't have cotton, period. Uh, unless, you know, some of these technologies where they can make it in a lab grow, but that's, you know, yeah. not in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. You know, um, does that answer your question a bit? I think the other thing that makes it quite unique is, is there's such a demand for it. I mean, it's, it's, it's shocking how, you know, and that's of course PR and stuff, but, yeah. but that's, I think it serves as a model to, to, um, that, that, that can serve as a template. I mean, for example, um, the growers in West Texas that grow organic, there are, the, you know, I think there's 60 something producers or growers. I call them producers globally. It's a different term, but, um, 60 growers, uh, there that are, you know, committed to, to organic and, and they sell their, their, their lint cotton for, I think a hundred percent premium above what other growers in the U S do. So I think if you look at that model, what's going on there, let's study it, let's learn. And really what that model is, is a direct to producer engagement because those brands want that fiber and that fiber gets into their supply chain, whether it's shipped to China or it ships to North Carolina, be spun or wherever. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting, you know, to look at. Thank you, Crispin. Um, yeah. I, have another, I have another question, Sandra. Um, can we talk about the impact claims for organic? And, and um, do you believe there's so much there's so much data out there that's really uncontested, actually. Do you believe the figures that are generally out there about organic cotton? I believe them. They're misused. And the same goes for sustainable cotton. Um, what a lot of the impact claims that you look at that are kind of, you know, you can do a quick Google search. Um, they all stem from really a series of life cycle analysis, and we call that an LCA in the sector, where a singular farm or a group of farms in a particular region is studied by some scientists. They do the water assessment, they do the soil assessment, they do the chemistry assessment, they look at the whole farm and what the impact is. And generate, you know, a report on that. Um, unfortunately, what the sector has done is taken that report for, let's say, a, a farm in Madhra Pradesh and used it as a proxy 
to apply to how a farm would uh, perform in West Africa or in Alabama, right? And that is not the right way to do things. Um, and that's where, you know, and some of the brands have said, okay, well, I'm sourcing, let's say 10,000 metric tons of organic cotton. I multiply that by some factor that's in this LCA and there goes my water score. That's not accurate. And that's a real issue because as we know, as, 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 as growers, of course, know that the, the, the performance of their farm, the soil types, the agroclimate regions, their own practices can differ from farm to farm. And that has different impacts. And so what we need to do going forward is we need to start collecting primary data from farm to farm. Uh, I used to call it farm to farm and bowl to bowl. Uh, at when I was at OCA, because other than that, we don't have real data and we can't look at metrics. And I think metrics now and, and real data is more important than ever, not only for reporting purposes, but as people start to look at, you know, pricing carbon, for example, which is something that, you know, uh, companies, I'm sure BASF has looked at it, but companies like Indigo Ag, um, you know, the UN, uh, others, you know, as we try to deal with this climate crisis, we, we're going to need to know exactly how much a producer or a grower, excuse me, is uh, sequestering um, in carbon. And then we need to reward that producer for their contributions. If I'm, you know, growing in a certain practices that's equivalent to, you know, five 747s in terms of uh, carbon emissions, then I should be rewarded for that, I think. And I think that's coming down the line. So we have to have a system in the future where uh, impact data has to be accurate, verified, and rock solid. And we have to get away from this uh, showmanship between conventional and organic and BCI and organic and all this, you know, all this backroom talk that you might hear at an ICAC meeting or at a, a Bremen Cotton Conference meeting. Uh, because at the end of the day, the common denominator isn't these labels like organic and BCI and CMIA and E3. The common denominator are human beings and our growers and let them manage their farm the way that they want to manage their farm and let them perform the way that they want to perform. And we need to be able to, to measure that. Does that answer your question a bit? I kind of went in different tangents there. A bit, Andrew. Good. Good. Chris and Bob, um, I think it's fair to say that the cotton industry as a whole has really uh, been into mud fighting. <laughs> it's it's and, silly. Um, it's really silly. Yeah, it really is. It really you know, is. It's, so it's, I think your point's well taken. Yeah, um, I mean, I, it, I I I don't think just to interrupt you quickly, Bob. I don't think no, that the that the you know outside of maybe a, a you know feeling good over a couple of beers, I I really don't think the organic cotton growers in Lubbock are getting into you know territory fights with the conventional farmers down the street. You know, th th these 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 kind of mud fights as you mentioned really only happen among the organizations the organizations I've, I've and it's absolutely silly you know i mean it's yeah totally maybe silly. an organic farmer might you know have to have a, a serious conversation with the guy who's spraying something next door then it contaminates his crop but then that's something they can work out together in terms of creating a border or creating some sort of thing and they do that all the time to respect well, each listen, I, territory listen listen i've seen i've seen things in texas where you had an organic farmer and he surrounds uh, his organic field with GMO cotton to keep the bugs out. 100. percent There you go. Okay. Yep. Happens all the time, actually. And 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 often. the same the same goes in India and a lot of 
you know, uh, right. other communities, you got a, a single farmer that in one field is grown conventional and the other field is grown organic. So what, uh, what can both sectors learn from each other? What can, uh, I say sustainable cotton growers learn from organic cotton growers and vice versa? Yeah, I think, you know, the first question you asked is what can sustainable cotton growers learn from organic cotton sector? I think, you know, adopting, as I mentioned, some of these models, um, we have to look at these models that uh, enable the producer, I'm sorry, the, the grower to be a, a, a voice at the table um, and be part of the commercial uh, engagement and transactions and, and, and know that there's that dialogue between all actors along the chain. Um, I think that, uh, that um, you know, we're, the organic cotton sector can learn from the sustainable cotton sector is how to think like business people, if I'm going to be quite honest. Um, there's been this kind of dogmatic community of and, and, and they're great people uh, around organic and they're fighting for this territory, but they really carved a, you know, we talked about this mud fight, they carved a hole for themselves because there's so much that can be shared across different systems. For example, um, maybe an organic cotton farmer who's been doing cover cropping or been doing, um, you know, uh, using different types of, of crop protection could help a conventional farmer reduce their pesticide usage or reduce their amount of fertilizer that they need um, uh, and vice versa. Maybe there's other tactics there that there's just needs to be more dialogue and again, not be caught up in the labels and the politics of it all. The other thing I think is seeds. I think that if you look at um, the, 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 if you look at, as I mentioned earlier, the, the, the lack of seeds that exist, the lack of non-GMO that are commercially available um, in the world, uh, how do we make those accessible to these organic uh, producers? Um, uh, and I know they're out there. Um, and that I think is something that we, we can look at and really share in some seed breeding, uh, share in, in distribution networks and create a business case for that. Um, at the end of the day, and, and, and again, it, it it shouldn't be something that is about one or the other. It should be, does that grower have a choice to choose one system over the other? And certainly uh, there are risks to doing both as we know, and there are trade-offs to doing both, but let that grower choose. And right now that grower, whether in India, uh, certainly in the US it's possible, but uh, in other places they don't have a choice. And so that's my thing is let's put the power in the, in the, in the grower's hands and, and see what they can do because we've all of us sitting in, in boardrooms, sitting at the top, we've, we've kind of, you know, screwed things up a bit. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting as you say that, I, just as a quick follow up, um, the, the role of NGOs in all of this, uh, do they help this particular process along or are they a hindrance in your opinion? I think, you know, it's a funny thing. Cause I was having this conversation the other day with respect to, um, you know, of course, you know, BCI and, and, and whatnot. I think in the one hand, they help. They have created a huge market demand for sustainable cotton. Um, they have brought together a uh, large swath of the industry in terms of brands and suppliers, et cetera, 
Uh, growers still are left out of the, a lot of those discussions, unfortunately. Um, I think their biggest Achilles heel is that it's hard to take a nonprofit organization that operates under nonprofit um, rules and, 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 and business practices and try to shift a commercial sector. If you, you know, I mean, we're talking at Lint, we're talking about a $70 billion plus a year industry and BCI for all of its success is a $20 million a year entity and it's the largest of the NGOs. How do you change things? You can't, you have to create business models and business cases and you have to incentivize investment at the grower level and in the supply chain to make this vision of, you know, this kind of utopian cotton universe come alive and it's possible. We know what we need to do. We simply just don't have the resources to do it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting along those lines, what you said, and I think it's, you know, how how do we all come together? Because I think outside of the industry, whether it's the agriculture industry or other whatever industry, there's a lot of um, outside forces fighting. <laughs> and so yeah. it's like, how do we all come together and move the whole industry forward and, and not um, you know, have the infighting among us, you know, and you mentioned about misuse of data and, you know, that has been one thing through with A3, with our partners at um, my farms, you know, we have really pushed to collect that data on a by field level, not just individual farmer, but by field level so that we can, you know, kind of debunk some of that to say, hey, you know what, like, well, growing practice, like you were saying, and, you know, we'll use the U.S. and West Texas, it's not the same sustainable growing um, practice that would be used in Mississippi. That's not the same growing practice that would be used in North Carolina and trying to 100%. tell a farmer outside of the industry, or like you were saying, you know, a, whether it's a brand or whatever, trying to tell a farmer, you have to do this. Well, no, that that's not how it works. You know, like let's, let's help, let, yeah. let's let you tell you, let, let's help the farmer have a seat at the table. Like you were saying with the, um, organic, let, let them tell it, you it, why it, they're doing it's, it. <laughs> it's, it's akin to telling grandma how to make her, her pie. Yeah, <laughs> we know she uses. We know she uses cherries. That's we know good. she uses flour. We know yeah. she uses sugars. From that, you know, it's a mystery beyond that. And and there is a deep knowledge. There's a historical knowledge. There is a there is a cultural knowledge that drives how farmers work their land. And you can't create a harmonized framework around that. And so what we have to transition from. And Bob, this goes back to the B, the, the, the not the BCI, but often they are you know the they tend to come up in conversation is you can't create a common set of practices. You have to create a set of outcomes. Yeah. What are we Absolutely. trying to achieve and let the growers get there themselves. And once they've achieved that, let's pay them more money. So, you know, if we're going to come off of this call, this, not this call, but this, uh, this, this podcast a bit, you know, maybe what we need to do, there's that organization out there that comes to mind that call 1% for the planet number of, you know, companies like Patagonia and Nike and some others have committed to that. Maybe we start a, a foundation ourselves that says 5% for growers and we get more brands to commit and say, hey, look, for every metric ton of fiber I'm going to buy, I'm going to pay the premium of 5% to a grower on top of market price for, uh, for the contributions that they're making to sustainability. And that will incentivize them to improve over time. Hey, absolutely. Why would but I think that big improve? important piece of that is that that goes back to the farmer. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, 
Exactly. I agree with you. I'm That's what I'm saying. hundred percent. Yeah. I don't know how we do that. And, and what, what kind of magic would happen on, a, on an Alabama farm, on a farm in Benin, on a farm in India, if that grower had, you know, the equivalent to five, five percent, what's that? That's yeah, an absolutely. additional three, four cents per, 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 uh, per pound. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, not quite, but, but a cent and a half per pound, but at scale, that's enough to invest in a new uh, state of the art for an Alabama farm. That's enough to invest in a new state of the art, uh, perhaps John Deere machine that can, you know, laser point uh, uh, pesticides and reduce that load instead of the, the broadcast spraying. Uh, that's enough for a, a water well in a dried climate, you know? So we have to think about that and look at what, how we leverage these small amounts and 5%. You know, Jennifer and, and Bob and, and, and Andrew, if you look at 5% on a pound of cotton and you attribute that to the cost of a t-shirt, it's a half a, a half a percent or it's a half a penny. Yep. It doesn't even touch the margins of brands. It's a, yeah. it's so silly. And we have it, to it have is. these conversations. It is. And we have and to I, be honest. Think... You know, I'm getting passionate about it because this is what I love. But... <laughs> hey, no, look, I'm the same way. And that's a great thing. And, you know, Chris, you know, and I, I will challenge. I mean, it's been a great discussion today. And talking about that, that, that is where I think BASF and why I get so passionate about our E3 program, because that's what we do. We do give that half cent per pound back to our growers. We pay that premium. And so, you know, any of our listeners and brands and those out there who'd be interested in, you know, finding more about how to do that you know, definitely reach out and let us know. But, um, you know, Chris, I think we are, we could sit here and talk about this all day and I would love to do it, but I think we're about out of time. And so, you know, thank you so yep. much for joining us today and Andrew and Bob for helping, you know, a lot of the question and answers. And, um, but one thing, Crispin, if our listeners wish to contact you or learn more about you um, and sorcery, you know, how, how can they reach you? Sure. They can go to the website, um, which is the sorcery. So T H E S O U R c-e-r-y dot i-o um right. to reach me and, and and i'm happy to answer any questions um you know jennifer i know we have to go but one of the questions i have for you if you're paying a premium this is something to contemplate why aren't you know and i know that that, that maybe you know e3 continues to grow but why aren't more farmers in the u.s knocking down your door wanting to say I'm, i want in that's something they, I think they that are. That's that you know what. And okay. That's the great thing because they are. So we more than tripled our number of growers in our program. Oh wow. I mean the BASF. Okay. So yeah, 2018. Um, you know I think we had around 200 growers. Um, we enrolled and yep. we, we started doing it because that's when we came to BASF in 2019. We had over right at 600 growers. So they are. Don't okay. worry, they are. Okay. <laughs> they Got are. it. Okay. We're well, paying I, that I didn't know so, that. Yeah. I didn't know yeah, that growth, and that, that's impressive because yeah. that's it, it, case case in point. Everything we just talked yeah. about for the last hour uh, centered around you know the, making oh, yeah, the grower are, more of a, a yeah. centerpiece. Good, yeah, Wonderful. they are, they are, and, and you know, and that's where we we really that and then that's our goal is to give it back to the grower. You know, because so many times I think people with one of my growers said one time they want to put our face on a Wheaties box, but hey, man, we don't get any of those royalties or payments. And I'm like, you know, that is a great motivation for me every day to figure out how do we what who are those brands and those people that are willing to for lack of better words put their money where their mouth is and, and do that like BASF yep. has done so well yep. awesome well hey you know I, I thank you so much Crispin and I'd also like to thank our listeners for joining us and hope you enjoyed our show yes, so if you have any questions about the E3 cotton program please email me at e3cotton at basf.com thanks so much and see you next time